All right, how are you guys doing? So I saw a lot of you came from the Brokema wedding. I honestly wasn't sure if you guys would make it back, so I was expecting a really small crowd tonight, and it happened to be a rather normal-sized service. Um, so as Daniel said, my name is Zach. I'm one of the staff members here at H2O Cincinnati, um, and we are currently in our series of Mark that will be in throughout the entirety of the summer. And so last week, Kyle took us through Mark 1, 1 through 15, um, and talked about the baptism of Jesus and the meaning behind that. And so in Life Group Thursday, we covered the middle section of Mark, and we're trying to use Life Group as a way to cover the parts that we aren't going to cover in the sermon series. Uh, and so we're going to be continuing throughout Mark this week um, in Mark chapter 1. Um, and if you're anything familiar with the Gospel of Mark, uh, it's a little bit unfamiliar uh, compared to the other ones in that it can be rather fast-paced when you go through it. So like Matthew and Luke take their time setting up the background, the characters, everything that's happening. Uh, you see, they don't get to the start of Jesus' ministry until chapter 4, and by verse 14, Mark's already thrown us into the action. Um, and so it just kind of, when you read it fast-paced, it kind of seems like a lot of short stories just kind of thrown together. Um, and I think because of this, we can be really tempted to like skim through Mark and not really see the depth of Mark's writing. Uh, and so we're just going to camp in eight verses tonight um, and really just dissect them and see what truth Mark is giving to us. And so before I do that, um, I just want to give you a question to really ponder over as we go through this, uh, which is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to get into the scriptures. Uh, Father, dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for um, just your creation, Lord. I praise you for uh, springtime. I praise you for summer. God, I praise you that we are able to walk outside and see your majesty in all of creation. God, I confess that I am just unable to bring this sermon by myself, Lord. I pray that your spirit works through me. I pray that there is anything that I say uh, that is not from you, Lord, that will fall upon deaf ears. Uh, but the things that are from you, Lord, will fall upon soft hearts, Lord. And that this can be a time to worship and glorify you. God, I thank you for your mercy and your love. Lord, and I just ask that uh, your words be spoken tonight, that it's your spirit that speaks, not mine. Um, God, we just praise you for your word. We praise you for your scriptures. And we say this in your name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're going to be looking at Mark 1, 32 through 30, 39 this afternoon. Uh, so prior to the story taking place, this is actually what we talked about in the life group this past week. Uh, so Jesus walks into a town called Capernaum. And it, while he was there, this is at the start of his ministry, he goes to the Jewish synagogue, starts teaching. It says he taught with authority that the rabbis had not taught with. And immediately a man entered the temple and he was demon possessed and started uh, yelling at Jesus. He called him the Holy One of God and Jesus silences the man. Um, and then it, we are told that because of this interaction that happened in the temple, that his fame thread spread throughout that region of Galilee. Um, and so this was a small town, about 1,500 people on the northern border of the Sea of Galilee. And so we're not talking like this would have spread throughout the entirety of Rome, but the smaller section around the city and in the city. Uh, later that day, he went and healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, and then we get to verse 32, which happens in the exact same day uh, that we were just talking about, where we're going to pick up the story. So starting in verse 32, it says, When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he, Jesus, healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. 
And Jesus said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So like I said, this story happens the same day that we were just talking about. This is the Sabbath day. Um, and because it was the Sabbath, the Jewish people were forbidden from bearing a burden on the Sabbath. So that would have included carrying their sick or going while they were sick to be healed. And so we see at the end of the Sabbath day, there's a mass influx of people that go to Jesus because they were finally permitted to. Um, and since this was a primarily Jewish town, it's probably about 1,500 people by estimates in this town, there was a m- large amount of people that were coming to him at once. And it's interesting because the primary people Jesus was healing here were his own people. They were Jewish people. Uh, and I, one of my first questions when I read this passage a week ago, just trying to prepare the sermon, was like, why would Jesus leave if there were so many people coming to him? So he had a lot of people coming to him, and then the next day we see he wakes up, goes and prays, and then just departs without healing anybody else. So I'm like, why would he leave? And I think the reason is twofold. First, because they misunderstood who the Messiah was, and because they misdiagnosed their enemy. And were these people Gentiles? I don't think I'd be as surprised, surprised as this, as I am that they're Jewish people. So like, in that time, the, uh, in first century Judaism, it was general pattern for most synagogues that have elementary schools in them. And boys, uh, Jewish boys would attend from the ages of seven to 14. And during those seven years, they would attend uh, school six days a week from sunup to sundown, except on the Sabbath. And even on the Sabbath, it was common practice for their fathers to quiz them about what they had learned the past week. And so Jewish men knew the scriptures from a very young age. They knew who the Messiah was. They knew that who the Messiah was supposed to be, who they wanted him to be, and that he was going to come. And at the heart of this teaching is memorizing sections of the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible. And so memorization is at the center. They had this idea there is a Messiah coming. They've been taught this for generations. Be ready, be prepared. And then the Messiah comes, and they seem to miss it almost. Because they were eagerly awaiting Messiah who would deliver them from their physical oppressors, who at that time would have been the Roman Empire. And I think it's fascinating here because Jesus does the exact opposite. So Jesus at the start of his ministry, he could have came and gone to a Roman city. He could have gone to Rome itself and began his ministry there among the Gentiles, among Israel's physical oppressors. But instead he started at a small Jewish village casting out demons of Jewish people. And I think this is significant because it shows that Jesus understood who the true enemy of not only Jews, the Gentiles, but all of humankind was. Um, So while the Jews believed their true enemy was Rome and that the path to that restoration of the nation of Israel was by by defeating Israel's physical enemies, Jesus showed that, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to come by expelling Satan and his influence and really the idolatry that that you have struggled with your entire existence. Idolatry was the Jewish people's primary sin. Um, We look back at the end of the Torah in Deuteronomy, in the Song of Moses, which is Deuteronomy 32, Moses even indicts the Jewish people for worshiping demons in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 31, after Moses reads them the law, he even says, like, but evil will come upon you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so it really sets them up for failure from the beginning. Like the Torah assumes that the people are going to be disobedient to the law that was given to them. Um, and we see this disobedience continuing all the way up until Jesus' time, and then he begins pushing back really the forces of evil and the darkness. And what I see from this whole picture is that the people, the Jewish people in this town missed that. They were coming to him for physical healing, and they were so fixated on who they wanted the Messiah to be that they missed who Jesus was and what he came to make them into. 
And it wasn't just the crowds that misunderstood this as well. The first apostles did not get this either. Uh, and so by this story, Jesus had already called Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Uh, so the latter three of those would actually be a part of his inner circle. And so later in the summer, when we talk about the transfiguration, those are the three closest people who Jesus, um, three closest people to Jesus, that he would take with him and show him the, his full glory as God. And so while Jesus had a greater circle of 12 disciples, he had an inner circle of three as well that he spent the most time with, invested in the most. And it's those three same people that in verse 37, they come to him when they couldn't find him the following day and say, everyone is looking for you. I think what they're insinuating here is that Jesus, um, people need healed. They need demons casted out. Like they're looking for you. Why aren't you there? Why aren't you down healing people? What are you doing up here in this isolated place praying? Why aren't you doing something about it? And Jesus' response isn't, yeah, let's go heal people. It's, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. And I think if I was one of the apostles here, I think I would be absolutely appalled at this answer. Uh, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, people need healing. They want healing. Like, there's lepers here. People need demons casted out. They're, they're dying of diseases. And you're saying, let's go to the next town? Like, the, the, the apostles are Jewish, just like the crowds. And they had in their mind who this Messiah was supposed to be, this physical defeater and conqueror of the empire of Rome. And one of the primary themes we see throughout Mark's gospel is that um, the apostles did not understand what was going on. Like, Mark does not hold back in showing the shortcomings of the apostles throughout his entirety of the gospel. Um, they don't understand who his true identity was. And we see throughout the whole gospel that Jesus is slowly changing their mindset from, hey, you expected this Messiah. This is who the Messiah actually is. And this is why I am better. This is why you need this Messiah. And not just a physical defeat of your enemies, but a defeat of your sin and death. Because I actually came to defeat sin and death, not Rome. And I think this answers why he left Capernaum. Because they only saw him as a healer of their physical needs, a good teacher, uh, and not a savior of their spiritual needs. He left because he did not come to this earth to heal nor cast demons out. He came to redeem us through his blood. So Jesus is a savior. He is not a fixer of our problems by any means. And the question I asked earlier, like, who is Jesus to you? There's probably a multitude of answers in this room, but really all of those answers can probably fall under, those one, of, under one of those two camps, either savior or fixer. Like, is he your savior or is he there to fix your problems? And I, I don't know, maybe to you, he's just a good teacher, a prophet, a healer. Um, the problem here is that Jesus didn't really leave this up to us. He was rather explicit about who he was. Um, like, he fulfilled all three of those offices, yes, but that was not his primary role. When you have a man who fulfills those and yet claims to be God, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like, that is the message he came to preach. He was a, good, he was a healer, a good teacher. He was a prophet in the line of Melchizedek, but he came to preach and he claimed that he was God. C.S. Lewis says this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, claiming to be God, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who, who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. And so this isn't something Jesus left up to debate. He was not simply a mere moral teacher because someone who you think is a mere moral teacher who claims to be God, it would exclude him from being a mere moral teacher. Like either he is who he says he is or he isn't. And this is the decision he leaves to us. Are we going to believe him for who he says he is, or are we going not to? And 
if we, if we are going to believe him as our Savior and who he says he is, this is something where we ought to fall at his feet and call him Lord. So he is the Savior. And once you view him through these lens, you begin to see that those other three, prophet, healer, uh, teacher, like he is all of those things. He says, come to me, all you, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And as such, he is worth modeling our entire lives after. If a man comes to this earth, I think Kyle said this a couple weeks ago, if a man comes to this earth, predicts his own death and resurrection, and then pulls it off, I will gladly follow that person. And this is the model that Christ gives us. Um, and so this, there's this big word that gets thrown around called sanctification, when you talk about modeling our lives uh, after Christ. And all it means is to become more and more like Christ with each passing day, like the most simplified definition of it. Um, and so this is something that the Holy Spirit will naturally do within believers, is to convict us and point us back towards God. In some ways, the Holy Spirit um, fills some roles that the prophets of the Old Testament did, um, in that the Old Testament prophets, one of their primary roles was calling people to repentance, back to God. And the Spirit does very, some similar things in that way by convicting us and leading us closer to the Father. Um, but this is also something that we really have to see Jesus as our example in our lives to really pursue this and strive for Christ's likeness. And so the second question I have for you tonight is this. Is Jesus your example for how you live your life? And I think for those, those of you that grew up in the church, myself included in this, like, I think it can tend to be a rather simple yes right off the bat. Like, obviously, like, this is what you're told from a young age. I was told this in Sunday school before I even became a Christian. It's like, yeah, like, I'm called to be Christ-like. I, I know what that means, but I didn't really understand how to practically go about living that out and what that actually meant. Um, and I, I like to think of, like, how I, like, for the longest time, I pursued it similar to how I, like, would go about building Legos in a way. And so I was huge into Legos as a kid. Um, and I, every single Christmas, all I would ask my family members is Lego sets. I'd usually go home that night, build them, destroy them the next day, and then probably rebuild them. And that was like kind of a repeating cycle I would go on. Um, and the one Lego I always wanted was the Star Wars Imperial Star Destroyer. Sad part is it's about $700. Um, <laughs> so 5,000 pieces, $700. Um, I added the photo up there with the man behind it just to show the scale of it, because I think a photo by itself doesn't really represent how big this thing is. Um, but I, I, like think, I like to think, if I were to go get that now, uh, for free, obviously, I would not pay that money for it, um, and go to try to build it, and I would just take the box, dump all the Legos out, throw the box and the instructions away, and try to build this massive Star Destroyer, like, I would end up with something. I probably wouldn't look anything like the Star Destroyer, but I would probably get maybe a ship. I don't know what I'd end up building, but it would look nothing like the Imperial Star Destroyer. And I think this is how oftentimes we try to pursue Christ-likeness. In order for us to pursue Christ-likeness, we, like, we have to understand who it is that we're modeling. We can't just try to go modeling someone that we don't fully understand or don't have a clear, clear picture of. It's like, we have to model his character and his practices in our life, and we must first have a clear picture of who he is in order to do this. And I think for those of us in our culture today, I think we also do a pretty good job at the first one, of modeling Christ's character, of doing the right thing oftentimes. But I think we oftentimes just fail at the second, which is living our lives in according to how Christ lived his life. And, like, there's a lot of awesome things about living in the 21st century. I love indoor plumbing. It's definitely at the top of my list. Uh, the fact that I'm able to write this whole sermon down on an iPad and not have to scramble through pages, lose one, place them out of order, be up here fumbling around, um, it's a huge blessing. 
but like this is a culture where we are constantly like on the go, always. It's like maybe you work from 8 to 5, you meet up with someone for, for discipleship from 5.15 to 6.30, you leave work right at 6.30 to go home and be with your wife, you also left work at 5 o'clock to go home and make dinner, you spend time with your wife, and then you go to bed by 10 to get up, do it the next day, maybe try to throw a quiet time in, and just on repeat. Or if you're a student, maybe you are in class 8 to 2 uh, throughout the weekday, and then you meet with people for discipleship, are involved in life groups, huddles, other leadership activities, possibly if you're on leadership with us, um, and then the other weekends, you do more discipleship, uh, you, you're involved in church, you help set up a church. It's, we always add things to our schedules. And I, I think this, our culture has this mindset that, that, that the more we do, the better off we will be. And I believe that this has really permeated the church. I know it's really permeated me um, with the thought that like, the more I do for the kingdom of God, the better off the kingdom of God will be. And, and I think that is missing the point entirely. We, we, we talked about earlier that the apostles were looking for Jesus and they were confused as to why he wasn't out there. Um, we see in this verse, though, that the reason he wasn't out there was because verse 35 says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. So the words here for a deserted place, uh, some translations, your translation might say desolate place. It literally means wilderness place. Uh, and so in some sense, this is referring and uh, symbolizing the wilderness that Jesus spent 40 days fasting in before he was tempted by Satan. Um, and we see similar language used in Mark 6:31. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of other references in Mark alone to Jesus just kind of escaping the crowds. Uh, I think one of the easiest ones to miss, and one that hit me the most prepping this, was Mark 10:32, which says, They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. So Jesus' ministry lasted three years. That's it. Three years to preach the kingdom of God, preach this message of repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Three years to kind of rewire the apostles' brains into away from like who they expected the Messiah to be and into who he actually was. And so when I read this, knowing how limited time he had, I'm honestly kind of frustrated at first with Jesus. Like, why are you not using every single moment you have to share with your disciples, to teach them more, to tell them the gospel, to tell them what to do when you've left more? Like, why are you not using every single moment of your ministry life to teach? Like, and I think I'm so misguided in thinking this. Um, like, Jesus greatly, greatly valued his rest and time with the Father. And if Jesus is our example, we are to live and we ought to value that rest and time with the Father as much as he did. And I really don't think that for Americans, this is something that we really think about that much, is valuing time and rest with the Father because we are always on the go, always doing something else. And I, I see here that model, Jesus models for us how to live completely differently from how we often do it. Where we try to find time to rest in the midst of our busy lives, Jesus lives his entire life from his rest. What is secondary to our life and our ministry is primary to his life and his ministry. And so if this is something that you struggle with or want to implement more into your life, um, I want to give you two practical ways to help with this, to help give yourself more of a rest going forward. Uh, so the first of these is Sabbath. And so 
This is something we see practiced all throughout Scripture. Um, it's not a command in the New Covenant, though. Like, Jesus institutes nine of the ten commandments in the New Covenant, but he does not institute this one. So therefore, Christians are not commanded to follow the Sabbath. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it's Scripture and that there's wisdom behind why God instituted the Sabbath in the first place. So it's not commanded, but it's wise at the same time. So if we look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3, where God instituted it, he says, So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all of his work of creation. So God rested from his work and blessed it and made it holy and set it apart as a result of him resting. Now, God had no reason to rest. I mean, he, was, he is the Alpha and Omega. He is the Almighty God. He himself did not need that rest. But he rested to set it apart and make it holy for us and to model for us a rhythm of how to live because he knows us better than we know ourselves. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses says upon telling the Israelites uh, the, Ten Commandments for the Ten Commandments for the second time, um, and remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. So the Sabbath is not commanded of us, and we, but we are a people who desperately need rest. God modeled this for us in creation and in Jesus' life. He was Jewish. He practiced the Sabbath perfectly. Um, and if we are to go to him, and I, when I think of the Sabbath and how I try to take one, it's a time to go to him in remembrance for what he's done. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses adds this to the Sabbath in a way of like, hey, when you Sabbath, remember how the Lord rescued you from Israel, or from Egypt, not from Israel. Um, Because we need to remember and look back and reflect because Moses knew their hearts and the people would run astray eventually. And so he told them, reflect back. Look at the promises God has brought you through and delivered upon and the promises to which he is pointing you towards in the future. And so um, if you want to like, I know there's a couple of people in our church who regularly take a Sabbath. Um, and if you want to talk to somebody who does this a lot better than I do, um, I encourage you to seek out Rachel Milholland. Um, I know she has regularly practiced the Sabbath for years, um, even throughout all of grad school. And so she was in grad school for pharmacy. And so I like to imagine that a pharmacy student can maintain a Sabbath diligently and see more fruit from their studies that most people can. Uh, like it's not going to neglect your studies. She's actually told me time and time again Uh, that her studies have increased and her time studying has been more valuable since giving a day over to the Lord. Uh, And so I actually encourage you to seek her out and talk to her more about that if you're curious. Um, So the second thing I want to mention tonight is of a practical way to live in more of a rhythm of rest is prayer. And this is really the hardest part to write about tonight and prepare because it seems so straightforward almost. like, I think every single one of us in this room would agree that we don't pray nearly as much as we should. And so coming up here and saying, y'all need to pray more, wouldn't really do anything. Um, And so I I don't want that to be the message that comes across by any means. Uh, Because I think the issue that we all, that I know I at least struggle with, I think a lot of people do, is actually a little bit deeper than that. Um, Because if we had that mentality that like all we need to do is pray more, I, I think that it's not really the model that Jesus lays out for us. Um, and so I want to reread Mark 1, 35 to 38 and kind of dive into what I mean by that. So starting in verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I've come. 
this is one of those passages I read, and I really can't imagine what Jesus is feeling emotionally during this time. And so I talked about earlier that these people were coming to him not because of who he was, but because of what he could do for them. These were his own people, Jewish people. These were God's chosen people. Jesus loved the, like, the nation of Israel. And so for him to be rejected by his own people as the Messiah, I cannot imagine what this prayer would have been that he retreated towards. We're not told it, but based on what I see in John 17 with the high priestly prayer, you see Jesus' emotions come out of him. In uh, the Gospel of John, or, uh, you see the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept uh, right after the death of Lazarus. And I think you see Christ to see the depravity of this world and the real consequence of sin, and his response is an emotional one. And then it, it, I think it reminds him of his mission and why he came. And I, I see a similar emotion being conveyed here. I, I, I could imagine similar emotion being conveyed in this prayer. And I, I think... This is interesting because to me, when I read this, it seems remarkable that Jesus is healing and casting out demons, but I would not call this a success at all. And it's not, a, it's not a failure because Jesus failed to do anything because the people came to him failing to realize that he was who he said he was, that he was the Messiah. Um, and instead of going back to the crowds and trying to convince them otherwise and do more miracles and heal more people, he instead wakes up and he treats in prayer. He sought out the Father, recentered himself on his mission, and then he went on to the next town to preach the message of repent and believe. And the way he does this here is key because he doesn't just add more prayers to everything else he is doing. He doesn't pray and go back, pray and go back, always constantly trying to do more for the kingdom of God. Instead, he substitutes his act of doing with the act of praying. And I think this is antithetical to how I often view prayer. I, often, I see myself as having like my prayer life and ministry over here and then everything else over here. And as one increases, I have to increase the other. But Jesus sees them as one and the same. Like his, his entire life is a mixture of his mission for God and prayer, and he blends them perfectly. And so like, if we're trying to model after Christ, we have to find a way to blend those and see those as one and the same. Is that praying is doing the ministry for God because you can do nothing without the Lord. E.M. Bound says this about prayer. Talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. He will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men. He will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men. It's like, if we try to go throughout our ministry and not intertwine prayer with it, there's not going to be much fruit from that. Like, frankly, there's not going to be much fruit. We have to learn how to pray to God and go to him first and speak to him first before we try to do the mission. And so the, I think the question that naturally comes to mind then is like, so how are we to pray? How are we going about doing this? Uh, well, thankfully, this past semester, we did a seven-week sermon series over the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so if you want to dive more into the example Jesus lays out in that, you can go back and watch our previous sermons. Um, but I want to read over the Lord's Prayer and then give us a quick way of how we can go about praying to the Lord. Um, so starting in Matthew 6, verse 9, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. <laughs> and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <clears throat> So Jesus models for us how to pray here, and an easy way to remember this is the acronym ACTS, uh, which is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So that big word at the end there, supplication, 
all it means is to go to the Lord humbly with your requests. And so I don't want it to sound like it's not good to ask the Lord things. Where Philippians 4, 6 tells us to, it says, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And so asking the Lord for things is not bad. But I think when we often go to our Lord, the Lord with our requests, we go to him as if he is not our savior, but our fixer. We go to him and say like, hey God, here's my request. Hey, please fix this. And then we walk away. Um, <clears throat> so like, it's not bad to go to him. Like, if you, like, maybe you need an A in your finals or that job you like or that house you and your spouse want to buy or, like, maybe, like, a family member is sick with cancer and you're praying that God will heal that, can- heal that cancer miraculously. Like, these are good things to pray for. But the concept of supplication is going to the Lord humbly. And supplications not only last because it fits the acronym well, but because I really think the first three, adoration, confession, and thanksgiving, not only glorify the Lord, but gets our hearts in this posture what's ready to worship him and actually go to him humbly. So we're not just going to him with a haughty heart, um, asking him for things. We're going to him as, as humble men, recognizing him for who he is as Lord. Uh, so I don't, I don't think we need any examples of how to present requests to the Lord, but I want to give an example of each adoration, confession, and thanksgiving uh, from Scripture. And so for adoration, um, David presents a really good example of this in Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. This is just a prayer of pure praise for who God is. Like David says, if I were to ask one thing it's my whole life, it's to sit in the Lord's temple and behold his majesty, just to meditate within his temple and lift him up for who he is as the Lord and Savior of my life. And after adoration, let's go to him in confession. And I think one of the best examples of this is Psalm 51, after David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband. He says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, Lord, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. I think that's one of the most humbling prayers for a man to speak after you committed such atrocious acts previously. Like, David recognizes that he is a sinner and completely unworthy to be in the presence of a holy and almighty God. And he even says, like, may you be found just when you speak. David understands that the Lord's justice is perfect and blameless when you judge. David recognizes his place. And I think confession really centers our heart to recognize who God is and to place us as on our knees before him. It's like, you are so much greater than we are. And lastly, thanksgiving. Um, the psalmist in Psalm 104 through 5 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. So I, I don't know, I really think that if you do these, um, that it's, I, don't, I almost said like pretty near to impossible. I think it's absolutely impossible to go to the Lord with a haughty heart. If you come to the Lord in adoration, confession, and thanksgiving and submit yourselves before him. And so like, let this be how we go to the Lord as our savior with a humble heart uh, for who he is. Like, he is so much more than a mere fixer of our problems and he deserves us to go to him for more than just our problems. Like, he did not come to conquer your oppressors or to satisfy your physical needs, but to set you free from the yoke of slavery that is sin and death. And I think we fall into the same trap that the Jews in Capernaum, Capernaum fell into, which is that we become so fixated on who we want Jesus to be that we miss who he is and who he came to make us into, which is sons and daughters of the one true king. It's like, 
there are miracles Jesus could do. He healed people. He casted out demons. But the greatest miracle he ever did is taking us from death to life. And so that should be worthy, worthy enough alone to bow down before him as our king. And so we should go to him at, in that with adoration, confessing of our sins, to praise him for this salvation, and then to present our requests humbly to him. So I want to be a church that prays just fervently to the Lord. And I see what Jesus is doing so often is coupling this idea of retreat and prayer. And I don't mean retreat in the sense of running away, but simply stepping away from the busyness of the world. So I want to encourage you to like routinely retreat from everything going on and going to the Father. And I set this up because this pairs rather perfectly with the Sabbath. And so if you are regular in taking a Sabbath, it's rather easy and already aligned in your schedule to retreat routinely into the Lord and praise Him for who He is. So like, this is not a one-size-fits-all by any means, though. Like, it looks different for different people who are in different stages of life. Like an eight-to-five worker versus a student versus like someone like myself who works for a church. Like I can, my Sabbath cannot be Sunday because that is one of the busiest days of the week for me. And so I usually take a Sabbath Tuesday or Wednesday throughout the week. Someone who works an eight-to-five job obviously cannot do a Sabbath on Tuesday or Wednesday because they work. And so a weekend works great. It's going to look different for a student. And so, like, this is something where you have to work out with the Lord. It's like, when is the best time? When can I sacrifice time doing other things to simply rest in you and bask in you? Because regardless of where we are in life, Jesus lived his life from his rest. And we should model our lives after how he lived in every aspect. And the incredible news, I think, is that Christ not only modeled for us how to live on this earth, but is the model for our resurrection as well. So Romans 6, 7 through 11 says, For when we died with Christ, we are set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. We are to model our entire lives after Christ, and this is the fruit of our salvation. It's like eternal life with our Father in heaven. Like, he paid the penalty for our sins. He suffered the wrath of the Father on the cross and died the death that we deserved to set us free from sin. That was the message he came to preach at Capernaum, the message that the Jewish people missed, that he walked away because he saw that they weren't getting it. They came to him as a physical healer, not as a Messiah, not as one who was to sacrifice himself for them. And so, like, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then you too have died with him, and you will also live with him. As he was resurrected, so shall you be resurrected. And this is like, this is the entire power of Christ and the message that he is still proclaiming today. And so before we go into another time of worship, I want to ask again, like, who is Jesus to you? Is he your savior or is he your fixer? And if he's not your savior, just ask yourself, is Jesus who he said he was? It's like, he was pretty clear about who he said he was. He said, I am God. <laughs> he came and he said he was the redeemer of the world, the one who lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and then rose again. Romans 6, as you just read, mentions this. It tells us this, that, at, that because he rose from the grave and thus he defeated sin and death, that you too are invited into this, to die with him, to then rise again with him. He says the salvation is through him and him alone. If you look back at the prophets, and how they would call people back to repentance. They said, repent, for the Lord is near. And they would call people to repentance to go to the God, to go to Lord, well, the Lord. 
But Jesus doesn't point towards another means. He says, like, I am the way to salvation. The prophets pointed to somebody else who could save them, which is God. The, Jesus, Jesus said, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's not salvation in someone else. He pointed everyone towards himself. This is the Jesus of the Bible, and he is God and worthy of our praise. And like, if you want to talk to somebody about this, uh, myself and others will be in the back during the second worship set. Um, and for those of you that he is already your savior, it's like, how do you often go to him? How do you more often go to him? Do you go to him as your fixer of your problems or as the person, the Messiah who has redeemed you, who has saved you from sin and death and has set you free from the yoke of slavery? Because we should be people who model our, our entire lives after Jesus, who understand who he is. Just like that Leo analogy, it's like we have to have a clear picture of who Jesus was in order to follow him and walk in his footsteps. And so, like, I encourage you that if he's already your savior, to just pursue him, to set aside time to rest and pursue him for who he actually was so you can more, more readily just make your life look more and more like his. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I praise you for who you are, your goodness, your grace. God, I praise you for redeeming us and setting us free. God, you are so, so good to us, and we do not deserve your love. But yet you died for us anyhow, Lord. You sent your son to, son to die for us, and we just praise you for that. We can never praise you enough for that. So God, thank you for this, Lord. I pray that you just be with us throughout the second worship set, Lord. Uh, that if we need to reflect on things, that we can go to you in reflection, Lord. That we can go to you with humble hearts um, and just present ourselves to you, God, as living sacrifices. God, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for our redemption. And we say this in your name. Amen.